Please join me in John chapter 7. And as you turn there, let's ask for God's blessing on the reading and preaching of His Word. Our Heavenly Father, we come now to You and ask Your blessing upon us as we hear Your Word read, as we hear Your Word preached. We pray and ask that it would bear fruit in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. Hear the word of the Lord now from John chapter 7, verse, beginning in verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? Here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Now let's read verses 40 through 44. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. May God bless the reading of His holy word and let His church say amen. Amen. Have you ever experienced a time in your life where you felt like your faith in Jesus was being divided? Have you ever experienced a time in your life where you felt as if your faith were being torn apart? If there's one verse that aptly summarizes people's responses to Jesus, it would be verse 43 here in this passage of Scripture. Consider the impact of this passage. So there was division among the people over Him. It's a small verse, isn't it? But it carries with it a significant weight. That word division that's used there is the word that we get our word schism from. We could say that there was a schism, a tearing, a division among the people as they thought about and tested the claims of Jesus. The people were divided. You see that there in verse 44. Jesus did signs. These people were witnesses to His signs. The turning the water into wine, the healing of the lame man, the feeding of the 5,000 men, and Soon the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And despite the signs, people were divided over Jesus. Jesus gave these powerful 
inspired teachings from His heavenly Father that He is the bread from heaven, that He is the water that flowed from the rock, that He is the resurrection and the life. And Jesus gave these teachings in the Gospel of John, and yet, people were divided about Jesus. And when we arrive at the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus is going to be arrested. He's going to be tried and convicted as a criminal. He's going to be found guilty, though he was innocent. He'll be beaten. He'll be crucified and buried. And then he'll even be resurrected. And despite all the passion narrative, people are going to be divided over Jesus. Maybe you're going through a season in your life right now where you feel in your heart that there is a schism in your faith. Where you feel like your faith in Jesus is divided. There's a division in your mind. We might even call it doubt in your mind about who Jesus is and the good news of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. What do you do when you feel that there is a schism in your faith? What do you do when you feel that there is a division in your mind? This passage teaches us to test the claims of Jesus so that we can know they are true. That's what we're called to do. We're called to test the claims of Jesus and our faith will be strengthened. And what are we called to test specifically? We'll look at these three claims of Jesus. First, we will look at the mission of Jesus. We'll look at testing the signs of Jesus. And lastly, we'll look at testing Jesus' fulfillment of Scripture. We'll look at the three together. Please keep your Bibles open as we work our way through this passage together. First, if you're divided over Jesus, if you feel that there is a schism in your mind regarding Jesus, this passage invites us to test the mission of Jesus. We're invited to test the mission of Jesus. Just by way of reminder, Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. He is gone into the temple and He has started to teach. And people are divided over Jesus. And we learned last week how people were rushing to misjudge Jesus. Well, here in verse 25, the citizens, or some of the citizens of Jerusalem, the people of Jerusalem specifically, they are remarking, they've heard about the gossip. They've heard about Jesus. They've heard about His signs. Some of them may have even witnessed His signs. And they've heard the news about Jesus, but they've also heard gossip. Gossip from whom? Gossip from the Jewish leaders who were seeking to kill Jesus. And so, Jesus has gone into the temple. Jesus is teaching in the temple. He's there in the temple. And the crowds are surprised. You see that there in verse 25? Is not this the man whom they seek to do what? Whom they seek to kill. The Jewish authorities, the temple authorities had the authority to put someone out of the temple if they deemed them a troublemaker. And so surely they thought, if Jesus is this horrible, rotten scoundrel that they say that He is, what on earth is He doing here in the temple? Isn't this the man they are seeking to kill? 
Now look at verse 26. They're surprised that Jesus is even teaching in the temple. Here He is, they say, speaking openly. And they say nothing to Him. Jesus has the audacity, they're saying, to show His face in the temple. And not only to show His face in the temple, but He's there teaching in the temple. And teaching openly. And the Jewish leaders and the temple leaders, what are they doing about it? Nothing. They're not saying a word to Jesus. And here's where they, for a moment, begin to question things. Look at verse 26. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Have the temple authorities been let in on information that we don't know? Is the reason that they've allowed Jesus in the temple, is the reason that they've allowed Jesus to come and teach openly in the temple, is the reason that they are allowing all this to happen, is the reason because they have somehow learned that Jesus is the Messiah and they have yet to tell the rest of us. Could it be Jesus is the Messiah? In the very moment that this thought crosses their minds, there's a schism in their minds. You see that there in your Bibles in verse 27? Look with me at verse 27. But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. They might be thinking of a passage like Daniel chapter 7, where the Son of Man appears mysteriously in Daniel's vision and is present there with the Ancient of Days. Perhaps they were thinking of some of the other popular apocalyptic uh, writings of their times like 4th Ezra that mentions that the Messiah is this mysterious figure and that He's a real person, but He is mysterious to everyone, unknown to everyone until His public arrival. The thinking in that day was, we won't know where the Messiah is going to come from. But we know Jesus. We know where Jesus comes from. We know that Jesus is a person like us. We've, we know about His life. We've seen His life. We, we, we know Him. We know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where He comes from. Jesus responds to this schism in their mind. Did Jesus hear them saying this to one another? Did Jesus just know their thoughts? Text doesn't tell us, does it? Jesus, though, answers their objections. Look at verse 28. Jesus proclaims. By the way, we've come a long way from Jesus entering privately into the temple. Do you remember that from last week? Jesus, last week, Jesus goes secretly up to Jerusalem for the feast. But now Jesus is here in the temple and He is proclaiming as He taught in the temple. And notice the irony in Jesus' words here in verse 28. You know Me and you know where I come from. You think you have an understanding of who I am. I'm so common. You're so familiar with Me. But Jesus addresses this. I've, I've not come of My own accord. 
I'm not like your other rabbis who, who enter into teaching ministries and gather for themselves disciples and travels around. I'm not just another common rabbi. I've not come of my own accord. I was not sent on mission of my own choosing, is what Jesus is saying. Who sent Him on this mission? Jesus says, He who sent me is true, and Him you do not know. What's Jesus saying? He's saying that the Father has sent me. He says that explicitly in verse 29, doesn't He? Jesus says, He sent me. Jesus has come, not of His own accord, but He has been sent from the Father on a mission to accomplish a mission the Father has sent Him on. And because the crowds don't understand the mission of Jesus and the One who has sent Jesus, as a result, they don't know whom? They don't know the Father. Isn't it interesting, like the inhabitants of Jerusalem, many people today, they too don't understand the mission of Jesus, do they? You hear a lot of people make claims about Jesus. People will say Jesus was a good teacher. Jesus was a good moral example. Jesus, some people will say Jesus was a political revolutionary. Some people are even okay with saying that Jesus was a miracle worker. Some people are even okay saying that Jesus was a religious martyr or a political martyr. But they're not okay with saying that Jesus is what? The Messiah. Many people will make all these claims about Jesus and some of them true in and of themselves, a, a nugget of truth, one little bit of the truth, but they fail to understand the mission of Jesus. Jesus didn't come just to teach. He didn't come just to be a good example. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He's the Messiah. He's the Anointed One. The One set apart by the Father to save those, all those whom the Father has given Him. Have you really thought about that? In terms of your own personal salvation. One of the reasons that Jesus came was to save you. You really stop to think about that lately. Is that a truth that has filled your heart and saturated your heart? Have you stopped and thought that Jesus was sent by the Father because you were chosen by Him, that He loves you, and that Jesus came to save you? Maybe you have a schism in your mind about that, a division in your mind about that. Maybe sometimes you doubt the love of Jesus. Oh sure, it's true for other people, but sometimes you might doubt whether or not it's true for you personally. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, many people were coming to Jesus Tax collectors and sinners, Luke tells us, were coming to Jesus. Oh, the religious people, they were incensed that Jesus would receive the pariahs of their community. How dare Jesus allow 
Dirty, rotten sinners to come into fellowship with Him. You know what, how Jesus responded to their objections? He gave three parables. Jesus gave the parable, the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. They all have the same premise. They all have the same conclusion. There once was a shepherd. He had a hundred sheep and he lost a sheep. There once was a woman with ten coins and she lost a coin. There once was a father with two sons and one of his sons became lost. In each account, the shepherd, he leaves the ninety-nine and goes and searches for the one. And the woman who lost the one coin, she turns her house upside down looking and, and cleaning to find the coin. And, and the father with the lost son, oh, he's deeply grieved and waits anxiously for his son to return home. In each case, when the lost sheet was found, when the lost coin was found, and when the lost son returned home, there was great rejoicing. Because the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son are precious to Jesus. Some of you here this morning, you need to be reminded you're that little sheep. You're that little coin. And you're that lost son. And Jesus was so gracious that His Father sent Him to save rebel sinners like you and like me. If you're ever divided over Jesus, you need to test the claims of Jesus so that your strength, so that your faith will be strengthened. If you're divided over Jesus, test his mission. Remind yourself of why he came. Secondly, if you're divided over Jesus, you need to test his signs. You need to remind yourself of his signs. In verses 30 and 31, we see that as a response to Jesus' teaching, as a response to the people's objections, they, who are the they? Probably the, the temple authorities. They were seeking to do what? Look at verse 30. They're seeking to arrest Jesus. Why did they want to arrest Jesus? They want to arrest Jesus so that they can kill Jesus. But, no one laid a hand on Him. Now why? Did they fear some of the people who were there present? Was Jesus able to slip away from their grasp miraculously? text doesn't tell us. But we know why they weren't able to lay a hand on Him. They weren't able to lay a hand on Him because His hour had not yet come. Anytime in the Gospel of John we see that Jesus' hour had not come, that hour is referring to the cross. That's what the hour means. Jesus' hour is the cross. And Jesus won't go to the cross a minute too soon. He will go at the precise hour that the Father has appointed. And when the hour arrives, Jesus will be arrested in His own sovereignty. So the Jewish leaders here, they're not able to arrest Him. Why? It doesn't matter what means was used. They're not able to arrest Him because the Sovereign Lord said, it's not time to arrest Jesus. His hour had not yet come. Yet, verse 31 tells us, many people, they did what? How did they respond to Jesus? Jesus' teaching, 
Jesus has done signs. And how are people responding to Jesus? People are doing what? Believing in Jesus. And what do they say? When the Christ appears, will He do more signs than this man has done? Now they're thinking about the signs of Jesus. Now some commentators that I read, they object to this. They say that this was a superficial belief of the people who are responding to Jesus. It says believe, but they weren't really believing. Now, there's no way they could have understood the full implications of Jesus' mission at this time. He hadn't gone to the cross. He hadn't been resurrected yet. He hasn't ascended into heaven yet. The Holy Spirit hasn't been given. So, we can safely say there's some things that they didn't understand, but I think we should accept at face value that they are believing in Jesus, and rightly so. Isn't this what Jesus is going to invite them to do when He invites them in in verses 37 and 38, that if anyone's thirsty, come to Jesus and drink and do what? Believe in Jesus. Same word there. So they're believing in Jesus. Furthermore, the Gospel of John presents these signs of Jesus so that the signs can be tested and observed and lead someone to the conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah and believe in Jesus. So here are these people, they are believing in Jesus. This leads them to a conclusion that we see in verse 40. And this is the reason that I've jumped to verse 40. Look at their conclusion. When they heard these words, the teaching of Jesus about being water for the thirsty, some of the people said, this really is the what? The prophet. We've seen that before in the Gospel of John, haven't we? That's a reference to whom? It's a reference to Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18 where Moses prophesied to God's people that there would be another prophet that the Lord would send like him who would teach God's people, lead them in the way, and the expectation was another Moses will come. He will teach us and give us God's law and do what? Signs like Moses did in the power of God. And so because of Jesus' teaching and because of Jesus' signs, the people are believing in Jesus and they identify Him rightly as whom? They identify Him as the prophet. Signs in the Gospel of John, and I have said this before, and I'm going to keep saying this again and again every time it comes up in the text. Signs in the Gospel of John are like evidence in a trial. They're like evidence. They are presented there for us. They are facts that are presented there for us to read and evaluate and test and to look to the trustworthiness of eyewitness accounts so that we can conclude what? That Jesus is the Christ. And if you ever fear that you've had a mistrial of Jesus, if you've ever feared that you've judged wrongly, well then you need to go back to the book and reevaluate all the evidence all over again. Gospel of John clearly calls the six, it presents to us six signs. It explicitly calls some, these six works signs. The water into wine, the feeding of the 5,000 men, the healing of the official's son, the healing of the blind man, and the raising of Lazarus from the dead. All these are, without a doubt, called signs in the Gospel of John. They're the evidence that we're supposed to weigh and consider. 
I've wrestled with this question. Was the cross and resurrection a sign? And what was a sign? A sign was a public work of Jesus. It was evidence that He's the Messiah. And I thought initially, well, the cross and the resurrection can't be a sign because they are the substance of what the signs point to. Thought about that. Thought about that. Read about that. Read about that. Here's where I'm at right now. And I hold this with an open hand. I do think the cross and the resurrection are signs that Jesus is the Messiah. I think John is using them like the other miraculous events. I think they are signs. Why? Because these other events, they're not pointing to the cross. They're pointing to Jesus as the what? The Messiah. If you ever doubt whether Jesus is the Christ, you need to think about the greatest sign that Jesus ever gave that He is the Christ. You need to remind yourself of the cross. You need to remind yourself of that grave that Jesus was buried in. You need to remind yourself of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We need that reminder so much Every Sunday is Easter in my book. We have 52 Easter's a year. And that's why I love singing an Easter hymn in November. Christ the Lord is risen today. Hallelujah! We need that reminder over and over and over again. It's the reason that we have the Lord's Supper pretty much every week. Why? It's a sign. It's a reminder to us. These leaky vessels of ours, they need a reminder time and time again that Jesus is the Christ because we go through periods in our lives where we have doubts. Where we might be divided in our minds. When there's a schism in our minds. And we're called to test the claims of Jesus so that our faith will be strengthened. We're called to test the mission of Jesus, and we're called to test the signs of Jesus. And thirdly, I want you to see here, we're called, when we're divided over Jesus, to test Jesus' fulfillment of Scripture. The irony in this, these last few verses, it, it's interesting, isn't it? Look at verse 41. The people are divided over Jesus, and some say, verse 41, others said, this is the what? This is the Christ. Good conclusion. They've, they've, they've reached the right answer. Jesus is the Christ. However, there's a division. Some say what? Is the Christ to come from Galilee? This is a similar argument to what we've already seen, isn't it? They're thinking that, well, listen, the Messiah comes from the family of, of whom? Comes from the family of David. They say this in verse 42. Look how they reference Scripture in verse 42. Has not the Scripture said the Christ comes from the offspring of David, comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? They say, look, this Jesus, He comes from Galilee. 
And He can't be the Messiah because we know from the Scripture that the Messiah has to come from the family of David and He has to come from Bethlehem. See 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 89 and Isaiah 55 and Micah 5.2. Micah 5.2 literally says, it names Bethlehem as being blessed and the Messiah, the ruler of Israel, coming from Bethlehem. So they know their Bibles. That's good. They just don't know that Jesus is from Bethlehem and from David's family. Notice the irony here. Both Matthew and Luke record for us genealogies of Jesus. And who's included in the genealogy of Jesus? Who's one of Jesus' forefathers? King David. Matthew and Luke record for us the birthplace of Jesus. And where was Jesus born? Jesus was born in Bethlehem. They are right on their Scripture. They're just wrong about Jesus. You and I need to be reminded that Jesus fulfills Scripture. Like our brother Dexter told me when the first times we met. He said, Pastor, I've got two premises. As long as you get these, we're going to be okay. The Bible is true and Jesus is alive. The Apostle John has the same two premises. It's like, Dexter, you've read the Gospel of John a time or two. The Bible is true and Jesus is alive. And in fact, there are at least 14 explicit Old Testament references used in the Gospel of John. Listen to some of the ways they're introduced throughout the Gospel of John. This is just in the Gospel of John alone. It is written. It is written in the prophets. As Scripture has said, is it not written in your law to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet? To fulfill what is written in their law? So that Scripture would be fulfilled. Or as another Scripture says. Time and time again, the Apostle John is going back and explaining that Jesus is the Christ in fulfillment of Scripture. One scholar, not only did he identify these explicit 14 references to the Old Testament, he also gives another possible 115 Old Testament allusions or references. Possible. 115. Why did John use so much Old Testament Scripture? There's a claim that in the church culture today when people have doubts, you'll hear people say, well listen, if you ever have doubts, just pray and just ask for God to bear witness in your spirit that, that all these things are true. Or just pray and ask Jesus to reveal Himself into your heart so that you know it's true. And Again, this is one of these interesting things. It's kind of a half-truth, isn't it? We affirm, we believe the effectual call of the Holy Spirit. Someone can read the Word of God and 
not truly apprehend the Word of God in their hearts. That's possible. The only way to believe that Jesus is the Christ is that if you've been called in your heart and your heart has been changed by the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, we are called to back up every single claim with Scripture. You think about Paul in Acts chapter 17. Paul and his ministry to the Thessalonians. Listen to what Paul did when he went and preached to the Thessalonians. Paul went in, it says, Acts 17, verses 2 through 3. Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, listen to this, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. We often hear about the Bereans too. They're also in Acts chapter 17. The Bereans were of a more noble character than the Thessalonians. What do they do? They receive the Word with all eagerness, doing what? Examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. When you and I have doubts, when you and I have divisions in our minds about Jesus, we need to test the claims of Jesus so that our faith will be strengthened. We need to go back to the Scripture and see specifically the very one that was promised in the Old Testament is the very one that came. And if all those promises were true, if the promises made in the Old Testament were true and fulfilled in Jesus, will not God also keep His promises to you, dear Christian? To justify you? Sanctify you? To enable you to persevere in this life? And to give you the heavenly home that He's promised to you? Test the claims of Jesus and your faith will be strengthened. If there's division in your mind ever, test the mission of Jesus. Remind yourself of why He came. Test the, test the signs of Jesus. Think about the cross and the resurrection. And test Jesus' fulfillment of Scripture. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that we have in Your Word a perfectly true and reliable testimony that bears clear witness to us that Jesus is the Christ. I pray, Lord, that You would take that good news clearly expressed in Your Word clearly proven and shown in Your Word, and that that good news would bear fruit in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.